0: If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in the Gospel of John chapter 1. I read this week, I concur with it fully, that much of preaching, much of what I preach and much of what I heard preach is not some new truth, but rather an emphatic reminder of something I already know. And there is great value in being emphatically reminded about truth. And the passage of Scripture that we are in this morning is going to introduce us to a truth that is relevant for every one of us. It is not new, but it is going to be an emphatic reminder for us to get busy doing the work of the Lord. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a period of time that we would call the 400 silent years. Now, what that means is that for a 400 year period in time, no prophet spoke a new revelation from God. No songwriter like a psalmist wrote any new song or orchestration as it were from heaven. Heaven was silent with mankind. The 400 silent years. In those 400 years, no doubt, humanity steered down a diverged path. And when we arrive in John chapter 1, we're going to meet John the Baptist. But the announcement of John the Baptist's birth is very important. I know I have you in John 1. Let me encourage you to just listen as I read from Luke chapter 1. Something amazing is going to happen. In Luke 1 and verse 13, we read, But the angel of the Lord said unto him, Unto who? Zacharias. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. We are reading in Luke chapter 1 and verse 13, the prophetic announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. But perhaps lost on us is the reality of what has just occurred. Because in Luke chapter 1 and verse 13, which we often look at merely as the precursor to the Christmas story, is actually the conclusion of the 400 silent years. God is speaking again. And he speaks to Zacharias, and in speaking to Zacharias, he prophesies of the birth of John the Baptist, and will further prophesy of the coming of the Messiah. The 400 silent years is coming to a conclusion with the announcement of the birth of a particular individual. That is a very important thought. We have to stay within the context. The 400 silent years is about to end and there's going to be a burst of witnessing that is coming on to the scene. Something arrests my attention every time I study John the Baptist. Jesus Christ is speaking about John the Baptist in Matthew 11 and verse 11. In the first part, here's what Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, whenever Jesus says verily, he's in effect saying, pay attention, because what I'm about to say to you is nothing but the truth. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is not speaking In a hyperbolic fashion. Jesus is telling the truth. And the truth that Jesus is telling is. As far as humanity is concerned. There hasn't been one greater born than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is greatness personified. God has been silent for a long time. And in the midst of his silence as I referenced. Man has gone a long way toward confusion. And it is at this point in time that the confusion is going to begin to be straightened out. And I direct your attention here in John chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 6. The verses will be available here on the screen if you do not have your Bible so you can know this is God's word. Verse 6 of John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same, John, came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He, that is the true light, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. We just had crystallized for us John's entire purpose for existing. There was a man sent from God whose name, his name is John. There's no vagueness there. We've just had crystallized for us the purpose of John the Baptist's existence. John's task does not have a human origin John's task has a divine origin there is a man sent from God his name is John back in the old testament in Malachi and chapter 3 we read this prophecy concerning John when we read behold I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me speaking of John The prophecy is, I will send a messenger who will go before the Messiah and he will straighten things out. In John chapter 1, we read, John was sent from God. And in Luke chapter 7 and verse 27, we read these words, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. There is no doubt... As we begin within the context of Scripture that the 400 years of silence has concluded, there is no doubt that John is the fulfillment expressly of Old Testament prophecy that a messenger, a witness of the true light, would arrive on the scene and this man is John. God's messenger is here and he is speaking. He has a message. He has zeal. He has passion, he was motivated, he has a different set of priorities, he's burdened with his message, he has a direction in his life that again is not of human origin, and John was strange. John was a wilderness kind of guy. The Bible tells us that John dressed strangely, and John had a strange diet, and John lived in a weird place. In fact, the Bible basically does everything to say to us, John was weird which means he could make it in our church. He'd fit right in. Weird dress, weird diet, weird origin. Come on home, John. Graceway's your kind of place. After all, your last name is Baptist. We put it on our sign. Welcome home, John. John was a zealous and passionate man. I believe that in the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth, according to Luke chapter 1, John was raised with the awareness that there was something special and unique and different about him. And what was special and unique and different about John was not something inherent. It wasn't his family. It wasn't his heritage. It it wasn't his education. It was the awareness that he had been tasked by God to do something very specific. He knew that he was the fulfillment of prophecy, and that really sets the bar high. He knew that the assignment that he had been given to carry out in life had come to him from God. Have you ever found in your life, and maybe I'm just apologizing for myself, that you lack motivation? It happens. I don't mean you lack motivation as far as a diet or a workout plan or even heading into the office. I mean, spiritually speaking, you just lack motivation. Have you ever found that you have entered into an apathetic state and in there is the whole word pathetic? You've gotten to the place where your zeal and your passion has ebbed and it's gone. You feel in a great way like you can't put up with it anymore. You've arrived at the destination where you say, in effect, I don't care. I don't care anymore. How do you get out of that pit How do you climb out of that malaise? How do you do that? I would put to you this simple fix. You and I must remember that as believers, we have an assignment that God has given to us. Remember your calling. Let me read what one author said. We need to settle on God's will and not our own agenda. We move through life of our own will and circumstances dictate our direction to us. We have zeal and passion, and excitement, if the weather's favorable. We can endure if the difficulty is not too overwhelming, but because we're not truly settled on what God wants, according to his word, what he expects, according to his word, we simply live in spurts, good spurts and bad spurts. We struggle to complete anything. We fail to grow. We bear no fruit because as soon as we reach our wits end, we throw in the towel. We think we've taken too much of a beating and we have no fight left in us. We must ask this question in this study today. How did John do it? How did John maintain his passion? How did John maintain his zeal? How did John live with such boldness? How did John live in such a limited way, humanly speaking, and yet do so much for God? The first thing I would say, as I've already referenced, is John knew what his task was. He knew that he was the witness. Witness is an interesting word. Witness is related to this man, John, more times in Scripture than any other character in the Bible save Jesus Christ. He was a record bearer. That's what John was here to do. Now you might be a slow learner like me. God knows that about humanity. And so oftentimes God in his inspiration of the word will really drive a point home and seven times in this chapter we are told of John that he is a witness in verse 7 we read that John came for a witness and if that doesn't get you he says to bear witness. In verse 8, he says he was sent to bear witness. In verse 15, John bear witness of him. In verse 19, this is the record or the witness of John. In verse 32, John bear record saying in verse 34, I saw, John said, and bear record that this is the Son of God. None of us can be confused when we just read the Scripture as to what the emphasis here is. None of us can lack clarity about what is going on at this moment in Scripture and in history and in ministry. 400 years of silence has ended. Bursting on the scene is the messenger prophesied from the Old Testament to declare the coming of Christ. Seven times in here we're told this man is a witness. He is a record bearer. The word witness to me is interesting In the Greek, the word witness is where we would derive our English word martyr. And when we think of martyr, we think of somebody who ultimately pays the price, the price of their life for their cause. This sheds a deepening and interesting light on the word witness. Because what we learn in John is this, if I am going to be a true witness, that means I will be a living martyr. My life does not matter to me as much as the message matters to me. I will be a witness and all of my life will be consumed in that. John's calling was all consuming. I think it's interesting, the word prophet. The word prophet, when you study out its etymology, comes from a root which signifies to bubble up and to boil over. Which means John was so filled with the revelation of God, it could not help but come up and bubble over. Jesus said it this way, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You can tell the contents of someone's heart by what they are speaking about. And you would not have had to been around John for any length of time to deduce this man is full of Jesus, because that's all that John talks about. John makes something very clear, and it's necessary for us to understand. We want to look at John, and Jesus says John is the greatest born of woman, and John is the messenger, and John is the witness, and John's all consumed with his call, and he's passionate, and he's zealous, but we read this in verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9 says that was the true light. As great as John was, he pales in comparison to Jesus. As great as John was, and as passionate, and as zealous, and as much of a difference maker as John was, he was not even in the class of Jesus Christ. He'll say that himself. What that indicates to us is the true messenger of Christ always makes much of Jesus, and little of themselves. John, the disciple, as he's writing John chapter 1 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes sure that we know John the Baptist was not the light. I don't think John the Baptist would have been offended as John the disciple penned these words, hey, John the Baptist, you're not that light. John grasped that. It's John who will say, I must decrease, he must increase. It's John who will say, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It's a fact that we are grasping. John knew he was nothing but a witness. If I were to ask you about sharing your faith, I think it concerns people. That, that gives us anxiety. Share my faith if I have to be a witness. First, let me say to you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God, if Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, you are a witness. It's just a matter of whether you're a good or a bad witness. You are a light It's just a matter of whether the light is hid under a basket or not. You are a witness, but I would encourage you, I would exhort you this morning, emphatically reminding you of something you already know, seeing the value and simply being reminded you are a witness. Share your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's something important. I think John kind of gives us a primer on sharing our faith here. We note this, John the Baptist is not the light, All right, we get that. But we also know that John was sent to bear witness of that light. And by the time we get to verses 35 to 51 to close this chapter out, we will see on multiple occasions where John will point to Jesus and encourage people to not follow him, but to follow Jesus, and they do. And in that, I see a primer on sharing our faith, a basics, as it were, on how to witness. Number one, it's not about you. John is not that light. It's great to share your testimony, but keep the focus on Jesus Christ. Number two, make sure you tell people who Jesus is. And John did just that in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. John is saying I will tell you that I'm here to bear witness of this fact that Jesus is the Lord he is none other than God don't be confused about it he comes back in verse 29 and he says the next day John seeth coming unto him and Jesus coming unto him and saith behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world John is a witness. It is not about him. He is not that light. He's pointing people to Jesus. How does he point people to Jesus? He tells them who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. He is God in the flesh. And he is the Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. And then we learn this. We should seek to encourage people to put their faith in Jesus. Encourage people to turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Push them to a point of a decision. This is a primer on witnessing. And John lived this out. I would say to you, if we're putting all of this study together, we're doing a little etymology, we're doing a little context, and we're getting practical, real world situation stuff, we're learning much. God was silent with mankind, and the silence is broken because a witness is now on the scene. The witness is a prophet, which means he is so full of what God has said to him that it's bubbling over. The contents of his heart are spilling out of his mouth. He is a living martyr. Every facet of his existence is only to proclaim the message of truth. And everywhere that he goes, he makes sure that people realize it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the lamb which will take away the sin of the world and you should put your... in Jesus Christ that's hard work we lack boldness in that department me just as much as anybody else in here I have found largely one of the problems that exists in a church like ours is that we don't know enough lost people we we get around people with the same ideology We create echo chambers and we kind of live in these bubbles and we don't know anybody that doesn't know Jesus, so there's nobody to introduce Jesus to. Everybody that we know and everybody that we converse with already knows who Jesus is. Then I would say to you, burst your bubble, burst your comfort bubble, get out and know somebody who doesn't know Jesus. You say, now pastor, the truth is, if I know somebody who doesn't know Jesus... I might hear a curse word. And you know what courses through your mind is much worse than what you hear, so stop playing the hyper-spiritual game. Meet somebody. You say, Pastor, what if I meet somebody and they don't wear a suit to church? What if I were to encounter them? Well, tell them about Jesus. You've already identified them. Clearly, they're not going to heaven. They don't wear a suit to church. (laughs) They got to know Jesus. They have to. You say, but Pastor, here's the thing. I don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus. And I'm trying to raise a family. And if I raise a family and they know lost people, the the lost people are going to invade our home and Satan's going to rule in our home. You fully misunderstand what's going on. We are salt and we are light. Our responsibility is to get out of our bubbles and into this world. Let me say this to you. A church like ours in an affluent area can be very buttoned up and very sterile. And we must be intentional about not having everybody look the same and act the same in a church like ours. Now, I'm going to scare you to death. This is going to terrify you. I'm ready to scare you. I hope it pushes you to the point of a decision. People may even preach here and not have a white shirt on. It could happen. We will rue the day. It could happen. What if they'd pastor, listen, I was there a couple of weeks ago, you guys sang one song and I didn't like it, I cannot invite any lost people here because what if you sing another song that I don't like? Well, you're right, they should probably just go straight to hell, lest they hear that hymn that we sung. Pastor, I'm telling you, I know on Wednesday nights, you're not wearing a tie. I know what comes next. You're going to be on the stage. It's going to be illicit behavior. There's going to be drugs and alcohol. There's going to be all kinds of things going on. I can't bring lost people here. They might be offended by the fact that you wore a blue shirt to preach in. Here's the truth. Churches like ours hide behind this hyper-spiritual bubble wall and think we're the ones that are pleasing and honoring God and perhaps we're the most dishonoring of all because we don't reach anybody. What I would say to you is stop making your ministry trying to make things what they once were and tell people about Jesus Christ and, and turn things into what they can be. And those that are really worried about the blue shirt or the one hymn that was sung, your bubble is made of steel. You just gotta pry it a little and just say the word Jesus. Just say the word Jesus and you know what you'll find? Probably a lot of people don't want what you've got. We have gotten to the place where we're so hyper-spiritual, we're not good witnesses. We have become the very thing we preach against. And I'm saying to you, we are in the years when people desperately need to hear a message and we're the silent ones. There are people who think they're super spiritual, but there's no Jesus in them to bubble out and over. They've not told anybody about Christ for an eternity. Now I'm not standing up here trying to guilt trip you and say if you haven't told somebody about Jesus, maybe you don't have Jesus. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is if you haven't told something about Jesus, it does indicate that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. He's not in there enough to bubble over. It's not okay to not be a witness for Christ. You say, but I'm scared, but I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. I just gave you a primer. It's not about you, it's about him. Point people to Jesus. Simply tell them who he is. He is the Lord and he is the lamb. Encourage them to put their faith in Jesus Christ and don't worry about what they do with that message. One pastor said this, I found it interesting. Our witness is a great necessity and it is a great not. It's a great necessity. We're serving a saving God. There's no doubt about that. He provides the foundation for salvation in Jesus Christ. The fact is, we have, we have now a work to do today, here. We are witnesses that are moving through the world, making us the messengers, the witnesses of the saving truth of Jesus Christ. We should look at Jesus square in the face as Isaiah did and said, here am I, Lord, send me. There is a great need for the church like us to be informal missionaries as individuals. That means you. We don't professionalize this and say it only belongs on the stage or it only happens in church. I mean you and I mean me outside of this place. There's a great need for people to hear the truth about Jesus. It is an utterly confused, it is a violent world. Honestly, it is a God-hating world, and we should expect nothing other than that. There is a great need for people to know the truth about Jesus. But what is the great not? John made this clear. He says in verse 8, I am not the light. In verse 20, he makes it clear, I am not the Christ. In verse 21, I am not Elijah. He continues, I am not the prophet that Moses talked about. He says in verse 27, in effect, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. John says we must decrease, he must increase, make much of him, not much of ourselves. That's what the apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, I've planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Witness. I'm only emphatically telling you something that you already know, that's preaching. The silent years conclude with the birth of a witness who bursts on the scene. He is passionate, he is zealous, he is fearless, he is bold, he is strange, he is counterculture, his message is potent, and he's doing this in an all-consuming way. He's a living martyr for Christ. He is simply decreasing And increasing Jesus, telling people who the Lord is and encouraging them to follow him. And his message demanded boldness. John's message cut against the grain. The emphasis of the preaching of John was sin, repentance, judgment, and hell. Fun stuff. Nobody wants to be told they're not good. Nobody wants to be told they are desperately broken. Nobody wants to be reminded that they are sinners under the wrath of God, waiting for the impending judgment of God, which ultimately climaxes in eternity in the torment of hell. That doesn't preach real well. It's fine in this room. I know that I'm south of Charlotte, North Carolina. Most people in here have grown up in a church culture. I can stand in here and pretty much fearlessly say, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, if you have not been confronted with your sin and confessed and repented of it and accepted Christ, you are on your way to an eternity in hell. You say, what a bold guy. I don't know, nobody even batted an eye. I can say things like, we believe God's word is 100% true. And People are like, sure. We think you should be baptized by immersion. Sure. We think you should send the pastor on extravagant vacations. (laughs) And now you laugh. This is the problem with our church. It's the only thing you'll call me on is falsehood. Now put me in front of a corporate setting. Take me out of here, take me off the home field and put me out there and say, we've gathered together several hundred people and we want you to stand up and tell them the truth about their sin and that they are damned to an eternity in hell unless they turn to Christ. And I am gonna have a 45 minute message to work it in real careful like. John's boldness is stunning to me. He speaks on sin and judgment. He he talks about damnation and hell. And he does it with everybody that speaks to him. The elite in the land, fearless. Organized religion of the day. He literally calls them vipers. He points them out, fearlessly calling out the organized religion of the Pharisees. He does not care He's a man's man. He's telling people about sin. I would say to you, we have have neglected to tell people that they are sinners and it has hurt us. One author said this, the very word sin has disappeared from our vocabulary. Any sense of guilt that would lead to repentance is for modern psychology morbid and a sign of a sickness of the spirit. A modern agenda has replaced John's. It repudiates the seven deadly sins as quaint and puritanical and thus suggests that they have disappeared. People do not turn to Christ for salvation unless they see themselves in need of salvation. People will not look for redemption unless they see themselves as lost. And John had the boldness to stand in front of Herod Antipas and call out his illicit marriage with Herod's wife fearlessly. Ultimately, John will be beheaded for his fearlessness, but he did not care. I don't mean that he took it lightly. I don't mean that he never experienced fear. I know that he battled doubt, because he sends disciples out to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, would you please... Please make sure I know. Tell me you're the one. And Jesus says to those disciples, he never gets on to John for doubting. He never shouts him down for being discouraged or having fear. He says, you go back and you tell John everything that you've seen here. Tell him about all the miracles. And when they got back to John, we don't know what they say. We don't know how John responds, but I'm certain John says, good. It's good to know that he's Jesus. I will stand my ground. And ultimately, he's martyred for this. But this boldness mattered greatly. In verse 8 of Matthew 11, Jesus asks the question, What went ye out for to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses speaking about John. Luke's account says this of Jesus, but what went ye out for to see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what you found when you met up with John was not somebody who was gorgeously apparelled or delicate in a king's court. What you found was an individual who was so consumed with sharing the message that Jesus Christ was on the scene that everything else to him was irrelevant. And there probably isn't one person in here that could align with John in that way. But John knew if it wasn't him, then who? If it wasn't then, then when? The pressure of looking around the world that he'd come up in. He looked at organized religion. He knew it was debauched. He knew they were corrupt. He knew they were liars. He knew they were thieves. He looked at the Roman government. He knew that Israel was in bondage. He took a look at the world. It was pagan, immoral behavior, wickedness and violence everywhere. And Jesus' message was in him to such a degree that he could not help but burst forth with the message, repent. That's again why he called the Pharisees out and spoke clearly on the sin of leaders. Can I say to you, perhaps, perhaps. We lack compassion for the sinner because we ourselves are just too tolerant of sin. Is it possible that we don't endure and we don't pay the cost and we have no passion or zeal for the cause of Christ because when we look at the world in which we live, we do not see them as lost as they are and therefore our compassion wanes. We don't have boldness because we don't hate sin. We're excuse-filled and we're defeated and we're unmoved by the wrath of God on sin and the sinner. We're tolerant and so we don't see it as damning as it is. So we are unmoved to do anything about it. Yet the Bible says in Romans 12, 9, Abhor that which is evil. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. We are the ones that have the truth. They're under the wrath of God. That's why the apostle Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes back in verse 18 and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He'll write to the church at Corinth. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. He'll say to them again, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I know when you watch the news, ideologically you are frustrated. I know what message is in you, because really what you speak most about is your preferences, your opinions, and your ideology, but not enough of Jesus. I know what I hear about, and I don't hear a lot about Jesus. And what we are grasping here from the Apostle Paul is when you look at the world and you see sin as it is, And you realize that they are under the impending judgment and wrath of God. If you see them as lost as they are, you cannot help but be moved with compassion toward them unless we have the spirit of Jonah in us. Who went and preached at Nineveh and so politically and ideologically hated the Ninevites that when God was merciful to them, he was frustrated and angry and actually wanted to die because more than seeing them be saved, he wanted to see God rain fire down on their city. And I fear that's where we've gotten. Rather than reach him, I'm just ready for God to punch him in the face. I don't know that I want to see him make it into heaven. What I'd rather do is see him have to confront the truth in the flames of hell. Aren't you glad God didn't do you like that? We have the truth. They need the truth. Paul said, I'm not ashamed because the wrath of God is revealed against the sin of man. I have the truth, so I use plainness of speech. I don't have time to tap dance around this. The fact is, I know the terror of the Lord. I'm motivated to persuade men because of it. We have to be like John was in that regard. I'd say to you, it still matters. The question is, do you still care? You know why you didn't live 100 years ago? Some people in here are like, I was pretty close, Pastor, actually. (laughs) I was pretty close. You know why you didn't live 100 years ago? You didn't live 100 years ago because God wanted you here now. You didn't live 100 years ago because God has a purpose for you here and now. I touched on this earlier. I want to reiterate it now. Sometimes we think we age out or we phase out of successful or useful ministry. If you are here, you are here on purpose with a purpose. And you may not have the same role that you once had as you look at the church system. But the fact is, you have the same role that you've always had since you came to Christ until you are with Christ. And that is, you are a witness. You are still valuable. You still have a role. You still have the same purpose you ever had. And the purpose that you now serve is stop working so hard to turn things into what they once were. And I say again, tell people about Jesus and turn things into what they can be through Christ. You cannot worry about all of the idiosyncratic things. You must tell people about Jesus Christ. He redeemed you and He indwelt you so that you can get on the witness stand and tell nothing but the truth. One wrote this, one of the greatest contributions you and I can make to the body of Christ is simply discovering what you are. And what you are is a witness for Jesus Christ in John 1 in verse 22 they said unto him who art thou who are you that we may give an answer to them that sent us what sayest thou of thyself they're asking John and he said I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord as said the prophet Isaiah John doesn't even tell them his name he tells them his purpose, and in communicating them to them his purpose, he is, he's telling them basically, here's my identity. I'm a witness. Don't worry about where I come from. Don't worry about my name. Don't worry about what I've amassed. Don't worry about what I'm wearing. Worry about my message, and my message is Jesus Christ. One pastor called John God's bulldozer. I like that nickname. I'll never have that, God's bulldozer But John's whole point was he's there to say, get ready, the king is coming. Yeah, John, who's the king? It's him. Who him? Him. There he is. That's the Lord. There he is. That's the Lamb of God. Well, who are you? Well, I'm not him. I'm not that light. Well, who is he? That's the Lord. That guy, the one that came out of Nazareth, why then are you baptizing if he's the one? Don't worry about me. I shouldn't even be over there to untie his sandals. When Jesus came to be baptized of John the Baptist, he walks in to be baptized, and John looks at him and says, in effect, are you kidding me? I should not baptize you. I should be baptized by you. John's every fiber was make much of Jesus, make nothing of himself, and we have completely flipped the model, and that's why we're as impotent as we are. We're scared to death. If anybody arrives at church that doesn't have it all figured out, and I'd say to you, the church that looks most like Jesus is a church full of people who don't have it figured out. If I were to simply conclude it, I'd say John's standing on the scene saying, He's here. He's here. John's crying, but he's saying, He's here and He's the Lamb, referencing that Jesus is here to save. When we fixate on our preaching, and I say we have to tell people about sin, we don't tell them about their sin and the coming judgment to lord it over them. We tell them about their sin and the coming judgment so that we can tell them about the Lamb, Jesus, who came to save them from their sins. The church at large is sick. A toxic culture has bred within the church, and it's steering it towards its demise, And the fix is not some new truth, it's just emphatically reminding each of us what we already know. Our task is not in a human place. Our task has a divine origin, and it is to be a living martyr, a witness for the cause of Christ, consumed by it, bubbling over with it, boldly telling everybody we come in contact with, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, and Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the Lamb, and you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the fix. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, Email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.